Welcome back to School of Calisthenics. It is Tim and Jacko with another podcast. And uh, we may have been referred to before as a pair of clowns. Well, this week, we've actually gone to the circus. We've physically been to the National Circus before and met uh, Director of Training, Glenn Stewart. And that's a couple of, uh, well, you've been three times, I've been two, and we've had some amazing conversations with him. And it was one where we just really wish we'd had the recording equipment with us and gone, what just what we just had that conversation there, let's have that on the podcast. So um, it's took a, it took a few weeks to get, to get down, but we have been so excited to actually pin Glenn down and get him on the podcast uh, to talk all things. You know, he's got such an interesting background of where he used to do national level gymnastics in New Zealand before he started coaching it and then how he transitioned into being a teacher and coach in in the circus and now coaching the coaches of the circus and the number of variety of different areas of expertise that he's got and that he's learned in the circus and how to apply it in other areas like calisthenics is phenomenal yeah it's such an incredible environment a creative space a space where people play a space where people are trying to push their movement skills forwards and the whole process around that with there where there is no rules there's no structure necessarily apart from um, the performance being the end goal just as a really enlightening and interesting um, sort of very quite unique experience that Glenn's got and he's been there for 20 years so the guy knows a thing or two about what it takes to make an elite level circus performer but also to train it literally anybody who walks in on the, yeah. off the street who wants to have a go at any of the different circus skills. So I hope you enjoy this one. We, we massively always enjoy conversation with Glenn, so we, we hope that you do too. So sit back and enjoy Glenn Stewart on the School of Calisthenics podcast. Roll the jingle. So Glenn, welcome to the podcast. We are super excited about this one. Since we connected, I don't know how long ago it was since we sort of have started a conversation and a, and a bit of a, a sharing of ideas and thoughts, it's been an absolute inspiration and eye-opener for Jack and I. So we're absolutely buzzing to get you on the podcast and for you to share your wealth of knowledge with the audience because you come from such a unique space um, that it is just too good not to, uh, not to share it. And it, it's definitely been something that we've really enjoyed pushing more into so welcome oh thanks yeah. thank you so much it's uh it's actually a real honor to be on with you guys um like it's it's definitely working in both directions it's been uh, great for me to sit down and and have all, all the conversations with you guys because i come away thinking scratching my head and, and uh you know thinking okay we're moving in the right direction but we're just sort of not at the end yet which is which is good for us too yeah, well, I mean, we've been down a couple of times to the National Circus. Remember the first time we were going to go, I was saying to, to Tim, I was like, we're going to go to the circus. I remember literally leaving home like to tell my wife, we're going to go. What are you doing today? We're going to the circus. It was like, what on earth are you going to Wait, do there? That, that doesn't help because our wives generally think that we just mess about at work. We're, a couple so of clowns, <laughs> anyway. we're going to the circus. That didn't, that didn't help. But I think like, where you're going to go, Jacko, is actually yeah. we were completely surprised by what we actually found and, and uh, the environment that you guys have created. So can you start off by giving us a bit of a background to yourself and then what, what is a national circus all about? Sure. So, um, yeah, well, I've, I've, I've come over from, from New Zealand uh, 20 years ago this year. Um, and back in, back in New Zealand, I was sort of involved in, in the gymnastics scene. So did, did, uh, did gymnastics myself, competed sort of at a, at a national level uh, and then pretty much went straight from, from doing into, into coaching. Uh, and sort of at the same time, we sort of started doing studies at you know, sports science at, at university, which most of that I could probably throw in the rubbish from all of that, those years ago. <laughs> Things have changed so much. But 
um, it was really interesting sort of tying in the, the training that I was doing myself with the, with the coaching part and how weirdly my own practice was improving as I was becoming a teacher. So, so that was always, that was quite interesting right from the beginning, the process of being a bit reflective and thinking uh, about how you explain stuff to other people. Uh, you know, improves your own practice. And I, and I think um, at that, that stage I was coaching, it was quite rare in New Zealand to be able to have a full-time job, um, but it meant that I was coaching at sort of all ends of the spectrum, sort of the competitive squad that we had uh, right down to the, the two-year-olds that were coming in with their parents, which, again, on reflection, was maybe the part of that time in my life that was actually the most valuable for being in the circus environment now. Um, and so I did that for probably seven or eight years in New Zealand, then sort of headed over to the UK, um, like most of my friends were doing just for, for that experience and that opportunity. Um, and to be sort of honest, I was quite keen to move away from just coaching kids at that point. Um, so I sort of came here with a fair open mind to what, what I would do, but sort of fell back into teaching kids because that's what I did and I needed a job. And, and But what was interesting here in the UK, that, that there was a, a huge demand for adults to be taking on board this gymnastics training, which in New Zealand didn't exist at, at that time. Um, so I sort of ticked the box by moving away from moving with kids and actually starting to work with adults, but still in the environment that I knew. And then I was sort of doing a bit of a circuit around different gymnastics venues, um, you know, just trying to pick up the number of hours I needed to, to live in London. And then started hearing noise about this the circus school um and so i sort of you know, went down and it happened to coincide with the year that the the degree program that we that we run here um was starting and they were looking for teachers i didn't have a clue about circus i could spell it and that was about it and uh <laughs> but but my sort of you know the sort of the obvious crossover of the gymnastic skills that sort of handstand the acrobatics trampolining to some extent sort of was fit in perfectly into what they were looking for at that time and then I guess from there, I've just been on this, uh, you know, nearly 20-year journey uh, trying to wrap my head around what this, this circus stuff is. Uh, and it's been a, a massive learning curve for me. And, and I guess one of the things that's kept me in the, in the country for, for so long. So, so um, the National Centre of Circus Arts, it used to be called uh, Circus Space. And about, I think it's seven or eight years ago, we, we took on the, the national title. And it's a very large, uh, you know, physically large organisation. The spaces that we, we need for circus are, are big, and, and but we've got, you know, probably a thousand users that come through the building each week. Um, and that's, again, right from the family circus, the two-and-a-half-year-olds that come through with their parents, um, right up through to the professional circus artists that use the space for training. And then I guess there's this big program that sits in the middle, which is the, the degree program. So we've got students here for three years uh, studying to be professional circus artists and they're all sort of 18 plus and they've all auditioned for the course and then there's lots of little bits in between of corporate work and all sorts of stuff so it's pretty multifaceted really um, uh, but yeah that's us it's an exciting place to work what a degree yeah, no. I did engineering crikey <laughs> <laughs> it's like just think yeah it's just it's it's mind-blowing really to see where where things have things have gone but I, I i presume before um before that was the case of having degree programs that actually it was all done probably that you you know maybe your dad was in the circus and there and he taught you and is that sort of traditionally how circus training has gone like over the years yeah no you yeah exactly right it was so obviously it was a bit more of a lifestyle choice and a, and a family uh, thing traditionally going back to the sort of the traveling circuses where we actually, I think it was interesting, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a perfect historian on all this sort of stuff, 
but you know, my, my sort of understanding is there wasn't really the role for a teacher. I mean, there was sort of plenty of teaching that happened, like you say, like dad teaching the kids or, you know, one of your co-performers teaching you. And so you were picking up skills from the, from the environment you were in, but you know, no one was paid as a teacher. They were paid as artists and they trained together and they shared together. So um, that's very much how, how it's worked. And it's interesting how we're sort of transit um, and it's still relatively new so that's that's that throws up some challenges well the circus has gone through a big evolution in the last 20 years hasn't it i mean now to go and see a, a big circus production is that that's something which is is probably grown in popularity and become part of modern modern day culture i guess when you started 20 years ago that that wasn't the case yeah i mean obviously the one that everyone talks about is Cirque du Soleil and, and yeah. i think we've all benefited from sort of riding on their coattails when they you know they turned up and are no longer in a muddy field we're actually going into theaters and 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 at some occasions people wearing tuxedos to go and see them so it's lifted it into mainstream entertainment um and look it's not that that that, that company is the goal for all of our students to be working in but we, we've all certainly benefited for what they've done to the profile of, of circus but you know even since then the changes that we've seen now like Cirque du Soleil still mainly are on a big scale I mean actually that companies changing all the time and they, they're changing their model as well but sort of in the, in the you know 15 years ago you would expect them in very large venues that was sort of replicating more or less what that circus tent uh, environment was historically but now we see it happening in theaters uh, and even in restaurants um, you know the, 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 the type of work that we see our artists going into is is really varied now and what does it take? Like, how does someone someone's journey into circus? Because when when we've been down to see you guys, there's, there's people doing amazing things, and there's obviously specific disciplines within it. Um, but, but you guys teach a very rounded approach in terms of through the degree program. Um, what, what sorts of people find their way into circus? What sort of characteristics? What's a personality like? We've worked in with a lot of different sports, and you, you tend to find that netballers are different to rugby players, are different to gymnasts. What's the sort of average so like if you can call them average because they're not average at all in terms of what they're doing but what is a circus performer like and and what is it that's different about them to sort of other people that you've come across yeah it's 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 a it's a really interesting question because i can i guess the word circus at the moment is still just it's a bit like music but music doesn't give you enough information you need to go well what type of music there's you know there's a you you can subcategorize that word and and circus we still tend to use the one word to describe it all but actually it's very uh, it's, it's getting to the point where it's starting to split up as well. So, you know, when we're talking about our sort of recreational programs and, and uh, you know, people coming in just outside of work or bringing their kids in and what they can experience there is actually quite different to what you, you know, and you would, yes, it's fairly obvious that if someone's training towards a profession, how that might be. But it, but it's true with circus having so many elements to it. Um, you know, there's not one body type at all, and it's in fact that's one of the things that circus can celebrate is that there is a place for everyone. Um, and 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 again, you know, it's one of these things that always seems like a positive, but there always are there are some negatives that come from it as well is that we tend to go yeah you you could do it and actually now what we're looking for because we're um, aligned with the university it's higher education you know we want smart artists as well so they need to be reflective they need to be uh, happy to, to, to do some academic work um, but also the performance element is really important. So they're not just technicians, you know, they, they need to be able to be expressive and comfortably on stage and, you know, maybe even to the point where they have a message or a story that they, they want to tell. So that becomes quite complex. 
but you know, a, a, again, as far as the sort of physical attributes go, um, it's that enjoyment of, of, of movement that we, we look for um, and that ability to, to express their ideas through, through physical movement. So under, underpinning it all, there's a lot of the same characteristics that you see from sports people or dancers. Um, and, and, and our job is to, to sort of increase, their, follow their strengths and sort of, we're lucky we can sometimes avoid their weaknesses because unlike a, a sport where everybody has to align or conform to uh, to the rules and and you know the biomechanics in some uh, some cases here we can go around those which which is which is fantastic yeah and i think one of the things that struck me glenn when um when we came down was obviously before we before we come and visit before we'd spoken to you it was had this idea of what um going to the circus was going to be like or going to the national circus was going to be like and what i sort of quickly came across was that um how all that variety and and seeing some of you know we as we you gave us a little tour around we saw the the we saw different levels of the students of some of the actual like professional performers and then hearing about some of the programs of like recreational users using it almost in a just as the same way someone might go to a fitness class they actually can come in and and use it as a form of exercise that the way you're blending that um came across really quickly to me which really um really enjoyed seeing that and started to immediately think okay what are the things that like uh, all these different disciplines can learn from each other then how you know selfishly for us we're thinking how can that then help what we're thinking about with various different things in calisthenics um and i think with your the question the first question i've got i guess is with your experience as well from initially gymnastics, having done gymnastics, but then taught gymnastics and then going and effectively teaching in uh, the circus, but using your experience from gymnastics, how is, what differences have you seen between how it's done or how you experienced it being done, I guess, because you were coached and then you then did coaching of gymnastics, but then the from the then circus side of things, and also what things are um, one can learn from the other. So what, what would you, what, you know, if you were to go back into gymnastics now, what would you take with you from the circus? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. And I think um, there's times when, when we become more aligned with the gymnastics practice and then times when we try and we steer well, well clear of it. So I think, um, you know, I, I sort of feel now I would struggle to go back into the gymnastics environment, although I really strongly appreciate what that time gave me. Um, and that sort of understanding of, of movement, to be able to see where correction can be made or adjustments could be made. And I guess, um, you know, after spending so many years being surrounded by it, you just get an eye for it. And, and that's, that's I, I really appreciate. One of the things I think is quite interesting is we talk about things like creativity and play and success and, and well-being, yeah. thankfully, a lot of those things align quite nicely um, to the way that we're thinking about learning and teaching uh, uh, these days. So I guess one of the differences is I've found, and, I'm, and again, I can only really speak from my own experience. I'm not sure who a gymnastics coach is like this, but you would be as sort of your job you felt was to give the person the answer as quick as you could to say, okay, make this change and it will be better. And I'm sort of finding in the environment here is that we would, want our students to find that solution themselves. So you keep guiding them in a, in a, a much looser way, sort of giving them uh, 
either questions or tasks to make them reflect on by doing this action, this happened. And then they understand, so their understanding is, is, is improving maybe before their um, ability to execute has, is there. So we're trying to just not spoon feed uh, the answers and, you know, there's a lot of assumptions around spoon feeding anyway that even that you actually know what you're talking about. So I think the whole model's slightly faulted and, and, and that, uh, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that, that we're, um, we're, we're using, but that whole idea of sort of keeping that creative play discovery approach, I think is where gymnast our circus is quite different from gymnastics. We'd like to interrupt this broadcast today to bring you a customer service announcement and we want to tell you how excited we are about the virtual classroom where our online community of amazing people are working together to redefine their impossible and achieve things in calisthenics that they never thought they would be able to, Jacko. Yeah, if you've not thought about it yet, you should really consider uh, becoming a member of the virtual classroom. You become part of that supportive community and you then get access to absolutely every single training program we've got, every workout we do, every challenge, every webinar, and there is specific courses in there for everything from beginners to, to handstands and human flags and everything in between you get access to all of it you get to learn at your own pace online with us within the supportive community of people encouraging each other to redefine their impossible guys it's really something special we would love it if you come and check it out and until you do check it out and we see you in there let's get back to our regularly scheduled program yeah. do you think is that partly because some of the things in the circus are literally creative and someone was trying to figure out how to do a certain thing with their body or skill or whatever it is that they're doing that there there isn't yet a set of parameters of you do this you do this you do this that actually you've you've probably got in a coaching framework for teaching a particular gymnastic skill there'll be a set of, of, of things going through would... yeah I mean that, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion around that about whether there, there is there, there are these things just do this do this do this and you'll get there and then once you get to a certain level you can add your creativity and it tend, that, that yeah. tends to be the, the sort of the common sort of uh, approach is that you know you build in all this foundation which is non-negotiable and then uh, you can break the rules yeah. but actually I'm yeah. not even sure that that stacks up that well and I think if you uh, have been taught in a way that you're very much waiting for your coach or teacher to be giving you the answers when they turn around and say now be creative you've, you're just not practiced at that um, yeah. so we're sort of thinking how can you keep that that questioning and that trial and error happening right through the learning process um, and so I even think the non-negotiables are probably still a bit negotiable I think that's a really I guess interesting interesting for me in, in that side of it is now that you know, part of my role here is to be thinking about teacher training and, and as I said there hasn't there isn't really any official pathways into being a circus teacher it's typically while I, I was trained you know as a, as, a, as a student as a pupil I can do it myself so I could probably come back and help other people to achieve it and you know that's that's really taken us to this point but now I'm thinking, okay, how do we sort of, um, you know, I, I took me 15 years before I could turn around and say, okay, I've got my head around this stuff. I could be a, I could be a teacher. And I, you know, now maybe I'm a bit slower than most, but I keep thinking surely it can be quicker than that. You know, so how do we help teachers to, uh, you know, accelerate their learning to be more comfortable in the, in the environment that they're in? But it's sort of interesting at the same time turning, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to fall into the trap of, as the teacher of teachers, giving them all the answers. You know, so how do you keep them being, you know, inquiring and discovering uh, in the same way we want the pupils to be 
Um, because I, I, I certainly remember the time when I didn't know much about what I was teaching. I was having to say, oh, try this and see what happens. And I actually believe back then when I knew less, I was more creative and probably more interesting and more engaged as a teacher because I was learning so much through the process myself. The students were getting asked to do some things that they probably wouldn't have thought of doing because no, you know, anyone that had a sense wouldn't have gone in that direction. But not knowing meant that there was uh, all these opportunities opening up. So I, I, you know, while we're doing teacher training, I really want the teachers to still have that experience of going, oh, I don't know, but I can safely try um, rather than just saying hey these are the first 10 tricks that someone has to learn and these are the 10 skills you know 10 preparation moves you should do to get to those and boom you know off the shelf uh, I don't want to rob people that um, moment of discovery yeah I think it's counterculture though in everything so that the whatever go outside just take anything if you want to try and like learn how you know these days if you want to try and learn how to do something you sort of Google it and you'll either find some articles or you might find a book that'll tell you. And it's all, I guess we've, I don't know if school does it, but we I think I'm just now spitballing, but I feel like we're conditioned to want to learn in that structured way. And that's actually, that that's almost like a thread in us that feels really difficult to, um, to get people to buy into the fact that there might be a better I guess it's whether it's better, a better way to learn, but just there's there's different ways to just learn, like learn as a process, full stop learn. Um, yeah. But we get bogged down in like like this, like this, like this, like this. I think so. We become, it's human age. It happens to everybody. And I guess me in a different environment, I'm the same. So I just give you the answers. You know, I, I, even though I know, I know better, I know the process is important and I know there's a lot of value in taking time in learning. But you're absolutely right. And, and I think, you know, that's something I'm, sort of mindful of as well, sort of going into this approach saying, hey, you know, I've got the answers, but I'm not going to give them to you. And people just get <laughs> frustrated and go, well, you know, I'll go somewhere else where I'll just give them the answer. And, you know, you, you somehow have to get that balance between giving people what they what they think they want, but also trying to adjust what, you know, it's the same in any gym environment. You know, people go, I want abs, I'm going to do sit-ups. And actually trying to say, well, actually, okay, we can give you a little bit of that, but I'm going to introduce something else that's maybe a little more functional that will still give you those benefits. And that's just the game you have to sort of play. Yeah. And they've, they've, they put the learner wants to, wants to know that you've got the answers in order to be able to trust you. But then if you're not then just giving them those answers straight away, it's just that that's a fascinating um, uh, sort of difficulty in a teacher learning uh, and, and student scenario that I think is um, yeah. a fascinating challenge to try and to try and juggle with to use a circus term but um, <laughs> but yeah but one that one that if you appreciate that in some in some disciplines we can probably get away with spoon feeding because we the outcome doesn't require someone to be creative but you need people to be creative in order to do things that no one's seen before. That's one of the things, you know, why we why we might go to Cirque du Soleil as an example because we want to see someone do something crazy that just seemed impossible. Yeah. Um, and unless they, if it's just the same old things that we've always um, seen because it hasn't got that creativity. No, and I think that's um, that's really interesting as well with this, this sort of the high end of sort of elite performance side of it. You know, you are at the mercy of an audience in a way. You know, if you go in and go, oh, you know, hey, I'm a, a jack of all trades, but 
master of none they go well get off the stage and bring on the master you know we just want to see the good stuff so so you know the sort of highly specialized model is sort of enforced a little bit a bit by you know where you can get work and what audiences expect so it's pretty hard so sometimes we get to that top end of, of the circus world and we start looking a lot like a sport you know you know you're going to do better if you've got the right body shape to do these skills. It's not always the case, but there is still an element of that at the top um, that I think is unavoidable and, and the same sort of um, potential sacrifices that they make around health and well-being to be, you know, a, a, an elite performer at a certain level. So, you know, there's definitely, uh, I think some of that stuff's quite unavoidable as soon as you get to the top of the, the pyramid. And where I'm sort of being mindful is that when we're working with younger people or even just people recreationally we don't try and replicate the training that you're doing as a professional the requirements of of, you know, of the industry and of the, of the audience doesn't apply to these young people or, or, or recreational people so let's not force them into the, some of the training modalities that we might use at that other other end you know, we have 15 maybe 20 maximum graduates per year that fit into that top elite performer category and then like I said there's a thousand people that come through this organization they don't all need to be training in that same same way they're not making those same sacrifices yeah I think there's some really interesting stuff that you touched on there going around the difference between principles and methods and, and we find that a lot and hand balancing is a really interesting um, discussion to base that around because we often find that people have got a set way of this is how you do it and they will look at other people's methods and and spend potentially criticize or or whatever but I, th I think the interesting thing is that that you've touched on before when we've spoken around there are more than there's more than one way to achieve an outcome so can you balance on your hands yes you can did you do it did it take you three years or did it take you six months some of that is is largely irrelevant because what you've done has obviously worked you follow some principles and there's there are some probably some principles within hand balancing that are essentially non-negotiable you need to understand some key components of the movement but how you start to teach those and, and, and link those together is really interesting and, and as you said before around building diversity of, of skills is a really interesting one can you just there's a story that you told when i came down to the to the day um a few months ago around um the performer that you'd worked with who was getting ready for a show was it i think um and they had to do a, a running wall backflip i don't know if that's the right technical term but that story just highlights this this point of one methods like versus having variability and and not necessarily being stuck in a specific process and being tied to that yeah so so it was um uh, a number of years ago but I was asked to uh, to work with a, a dancer that was doing singing in the rain, and there's the sort of the famous piece that you know runs across the room, up the wall, and back somersault back to his feet. So we had a relatively short time, but this guy was an athlete. You know, he was super fit and had you know he could jump around. He was he was, he was a, a high level dancer. So actually, it was a good starting point. And so we came in and we just you know you know again I look back at it. You know, is it my fault? Is it the fault of the, you know, the, the restrictions we had time-wise and, you know, the, the, the company was paying, you know, for him to have as minimum number of sessions as possible to get him achieving what they needed to achieve. And, you know, so we went straight in and we said, okay, we're going to learn a wall backflip by doing wall backflips. And I'm just here and I'll, you know, each time you do it, I'll give you a bit of feedback and I'll push you a bit more and I'll help you a bit more. And hopefully, eventually I can pull back the amount that I'm helping you until you're doing it by yourself. And it didn't take long uh, before he was achieving it. You know, he, he, it was great. He, he, he was doing it. So we sort of tick, you know, job done. And then basically I went in to see the dress rehearsal. So he went back into, into rehearsals and he had lots of other stuff to obviously think about. And the backflip was this little moment in the show. And what was interesting, it started to go wrong. And 
uh, he had no understanding or, or ability to understand why it was going wrong or what to do about it when it was going wrong. So each one became a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy until the point where it was life-threatening, you know, like and they had to cut it from the show. <laughs> this, guy, this guy was, you know, ending up on his face in front of the audience, so they just had to ax it. And it sort of shows if you sort of try and fast-track that learning, and you may achieve it. You can get to that endpoint and go, tick, done. But if there's not that underlying sort of variability or, or like I say, if the understanding isn't there before the execution, you've got no ability to adjust. And I guess that's like a golfer, you know, if you're on a downhill slope, uphill slope of the wind's blowing, they know how to make the adjustments because they inherently understand all of the variability that, that they have. And I, and I, I, that's something that's important about the, the approach to some of the teaching we have is just that do this, do this, do this, and you'll get this. And it's like if I was sitting next to you in a kitchen and just I was telling you the recipe and do this and do this and do this. Okay, you achieve, you make the cake, but then when I leave, the next day you're like, oh, shit, was a half a cup of, and you're sort of doing it and the cake starts deteriorating and then you try and sort of add more to make up the, you know, to try and fix it. But you have no clue because it was only my voice that was giving you that instruction. And what we want is to have an understanding of, well, okay, what, you know, what, what do we need to make this cake really work? And, oh, it tastes a bit funny. I know what to do to fix that. I add salt, I add sugar, whatever it is. So there's an underlying understanding that, that you know, being in a higher education institution, being, you know, good coaches, I think that's something we should be uh, keeping at the top of the list. And then the crux of that then comes down from a practical perspective of anybody who's listening and working on, on some of their skills and movement skills is to embrace two things really around variability of practice. So not necessarily thinking like the, what is the straightest line from A to B and actually spending time deviating around that. And um, But that comes hand in hand as what Jacko was saying before about the, the length of time that it, it takes to get there. And we've also touched around that of, of, of embracing the journey. And you've mentioned before around that, that the destination is what we often want to achieve, but people not necessarily recognizing where the real value of that whole kind of conversation and experiences. Yeah, I think, and I think that's really, and that's, that's really challenging as a, as a teacher, as a coach, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, really. And, and, you know, when you think about working with kids and, and, you know, you're doing an Easter egg hunt and, you know, so you, the hunt is what's the important, because you could just stand there and go, here, these are the Easter eggs that you're going to find at the end and give them that and that'd be great. But actually, you know, what it is, is like, you know, under the sofa and over the fence and, you know, and you, and on the way you're finding these little rewards. Is it the next clue or is there a, a smaller Easter egg to get to the, to the bigger end and actually, that's what the fun part is that's the game and that's the that's where they're socially engaging that's when they're laughing that's when they're experimenting with whatever it is so so it's really important but how do you how you do that as a teacher to make sure that there's value along the way that you're showing success that you're able to connect some of the smaller steps to the to the bigger goal and at the end of the day all these it's all relative like the, the end goal of learning a handstand is just another stepping stone towards a walking handstand or a one-arm handstand or whatever it is. Like there's no end point, but we've got to recognize the value of all the smaller sections that, that there are along the way. And I think that that's, you know, we did a bit of work with Chelsea football Academy a while ago and, uh, I learned a lot from Will Tullett. He's, a, he's, a, he's an amazing guy and his, his approach to, to movement and diversifying practice is really interesting and sort of gives us graph, graphical representation of, of vertical skill you know, building. And in, in, in the circus world, if you look at juggling, it's go three balls to four balls to five balls to six balls and it's just very linear and it's very up and it becomes this very tall, narrow, precarious tower that doesn't have any architectural structure to it. Whereas if at each point you can go wide and diversify the, 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 
the approaches that you're taking at each technical level, then you build this big wide structure that's that's got a lot of uh, a lot of strength to it. Yeah, I think it to me it just opens up a slightly you know that opens up the question um, and gives some real uh, more context and meat to why someone's learning using that Tim's handstand example. Um, but it opens up the question to me, and it's not necessarily one you can you can answer. But I just want to throw it in the mix more to challenge people that are listening. Of when we want to learn, so if someone said, "I want to handstand um, as fast as possible," and you've just gave us all the reasons why actually just the fastest way might not be the the most beneficial way. But my question, I'm sort of is ringing in my ears, is like for that for that person and, and asking it almost of ourselves as well as like why do you want to learn it what's the reason behind that and i think that's actually a really difficult thing for people to answer but i think it's one that i just encourage people to just try to just chew over and engage in like why am i wanting to learn to do that thing i sometimes don't think that we know why no until we don't really know why like why did you want to learn to do a human flag your initial why was because it's cool yeah and that was enough um and then i think when you've done that process you then start to reflect on it and you go well there's actually the real why the initial why is way different to what the why is and why would you say now to someone should learn a human flag you say well it's great for your shoulders yeah. and you get to do a cool photo yeah, like yeah, it's contextual yeah. isn't it about yeah. experience yeah. I, I, that's it I think you, you never know um, yeah, I, I remember how this maybe this is embarrassing but I guess one of the big moments in my life was uh the movie Footloose <laughs> and uh, at the end of the film Kevin Bacon runs into the room does a standing back somersault and I went wow that's cool I want to learn to do that. And, you know, whether it was just that on its own, but I remember that moment. And sure enough, that was my, you know, beginning of, of wanting to, to learn it and achieve it. So, we, yeah, we may have some of these very sort of um, nostalgic uh, moments in our lives or, or these, these moments in, in, in our past where we, we were inspired by something. But like you say, going, mm. going you know, years later, the reason may be very, very different. And actually, yeah, we can talk about that health and well-being approach and it's you know teaching an old dog new tricks and all those sort of stuff of keeping keeping that skill acquisition as something you can have as an adult where it always seemed to be the sort of thing that you did as a kid like I was completely blown away when when coming here and like I say there's there was this demand from from adults wanting to learn gymnastics and I, it's like no way it's impossible you know the rule is you start before the age of 10 or there's no chance and it's not that these guys were, you know, women wanted to be Olympians, but they they made the connection to actually this fun way of moving and exploring and playing that we had as, as children. And then there's been this sort of 15-year gap and actually there's an opportunity to get back into it. And it makes sense. But, um, you know, yeah, yeah. So I think that the journey and the rationale behind the journey can change quite often. Yeah. I think you've got, that's one thing which is really attractive about what you guys are doing is that it's so open. I mean, it's, it's fairly intimidating as you think you're going to circus when you don't know anything about it. So if, if someone was in, in the area, wanted to come and pay you guys a visit, it's near old street in London. Um, you can walk in and it is literally like a playground. And the thing that you guys do so well is you're so welcoming to anybody from any background, I think, who could just come and just want to, do you know what? I want to go on a trapeze. Well, you can do that at the National <laughs> Circus. And it's, and for whatever reason that is, that's I cool. think that's a really, a really amazing thing. And it is a, it is a beautiful um, environment and from both a, uh, structural like in terms of where you are based but you walk in if you've got any appreciation for movement you walk in and go this is cool like I can have some fun and then you start seeing people doing some ridiculous stuff so for the first time that we came down there was a guy on his head juggling um, clubs with his feet pretty much and Jack and I were like that is amazing but he was, his head was on a, on a chair and 
Am I right in thinking, Glenn, that his actual stage performance is that on a unicycle? Is that right? No, no, well, close. One similar sort of craziness. There's actually a, um, a a trapeze that swings, so he's really high in the air on a single bar that has a little sort of round slot that he can put on the top of his head, like a sort of a skull cap, and that's it. And that's all his his contact point is, and he's completely on his head, swinging across the stage, and and yes, quite often juggling at the same time. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 and he's uh, juggling with his feet. No, he's juggling between his hands and his feet so he can throw from his hands and, and land it on his foot yeah. and then drop it down and yeah it's just it's nuts but it's amazing how like you've talked <laughs> before that the the need to continue to push the boundaries and that's one thing just to draw out from some of the conversation before around what's so unique about your environment is creativity and play is such an important part of it that then links into if you embrace that mindset and then learning these complex skills like we, we talk about of, of creating variability rather than just going for the fastest route. I think that's where we lose that sense of creativity and play where we, we don't embrace the process. We want the fastest route. Um, taking a bit more of a, a, a more holistic and wider view of things is actually so much value, but we have to experience some of that to, to know why that is so valuable. But... F- yeah, what your thoughts on that, Glenn? And then I want to dive into a little bit around skill acquisition because you guys have got some unique experience on that, that people can can take away from from some of your learning. Yeah, I think I think that is that is it, and it's interesting because you know where we borrow from other disciplines. So in some in some cases, like there's a you know a classic pan acrobatics pair when you typically have a base that's on the ground that's lifting in person in the air, and then there's a really obvious crossover with uh, Olympic lifting. You know, so a lot of the movements are very similar, accelerating someone from below to above it, throwing them up in the air. And uh, if you go directly and say, well, you know, what is the best position to be in to be lifting uh, this amount of weight? Uh, you know, you'd say, okay, well, feet parallel and all this sort of stuff, and the, the sort of Olympic lifting coaching tips that you might follow but then you realize that you've got a human being and not a bar and if you're throwing that person and they land and actually all of a sudden they're not in the position that they were before you need to be able to make an adjustment and actually if you haven't practiced in the less than perfect position that's where we we see injuries happening so we are trying to explore and you know you you modify the skill as you need to uh, less than ideal positions so your capacity is there's a central point where if you had choice that's where you'd be if you were going to be doing high repetition or high load that's where you'd be but you know what can you do as far away from that point as possible and still be successful and we sort of believe that 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 um that builds capacity in that area so adding on the next technical level is an easier task because because of our variance and then ultimately, you've done some work to develop your general motor skill capacity. And therefore, as you go to more advanced movements, you've got a broader base of going, well, rather than just learning this perfect technique, I'm actually going to incorporate this variability and my ability to manage a bit of chaos into something new, which then takes it to a higher level and from a performance gives you more scope to play and, and to develop in the future. So I think it's it does when you start to see it from that level um, through the, the complexity of, of a movement, such as some of the stuff that you guys deal with, you really start to see how people evolve to do some incredible stuff. And and that's the sort of the, the, one of the questions I wanted to ask around. Because someone can come and see a circus show and they can see these guys just doing incredible things. What does that journey look like? And we've talked before around skill acquisition and, and you can dive into detail of that if you want to. But for anybody who's looks at this, something and goes, you know what, it's impossible. Whether that's being on a trapeze juggling or whether it's their first handstand, 
what 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 do you how do you look at that process and how do we move people through that um so that literally anybody can have a go yeah i think you know we first of all we just have to remember that that, that uh complexity or or, uh, or difficulty is all relative you know we have someone in here that their their ford role is someone else's ford somersault and we need to think how do we break down uh the skill into areas where they can, you know, where can they build capacity in each segment of what they're doing. And so that any, um, it, it, when they're pushing themselves out of their comfort zone, it's relative to their comfort zone, not to the, the person next to them. So it's that, um, I, we're trying to say you know, like, how many things can we, how many boxes can we tick with the work that we're doing? Uh, you know, what, what, why is a handstand such a valuable tool? You know, because it builds so much capacity and and that confidence to be uh, inverted, the, the 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 security that you know that your hands are going to keep, your arms are going to keep your nose off the floor, and all of that stuff is transferable to a cartwheel or to more dynamic acrobatics. Um, you know, knowing your shoulders can be in a good position works when you're hanging from a bar. So actually making sure that we're building as much capacity in, the, in a variety of positions so that the, when we say, okay, we're going to that next level of technical complexity, it's just one step. It's not a massive jump. We've also gone in, into the idea of um, uh, sort of diversifying the, the approach. So, so rather than building one tower at a time, you build multiple towers consecutively. So, uh, rather than say, okay, best way to learn somersault is just do somersault and keep doing that. Don't get distracted with anything else. And, and once that's done, you can move on to the next skill. And actually we're saying, well, actually by, by spreading the dose, by dosing it out, we think you, your, your capacity to learn is better. So rather than, you know, it's a bit like getting a suntan. You, you, know, you, you might need, you know, six hours in the sun, but you don't want to do that at once. You might want to spread that over a two-week period. Uh, so we're sort of really trying to say, you know, what other work can you do that's not directly aligned with the goal that you have, but will also facilitate your ability uh, to achieve the goal you, you want. Um, and and it, the rest of it's sort of quite, um, it, so it's not rocket science, it's that thing about can you break down the skills into the components that allow people to be successful. And I, and I think that, that, that thing about um, what's the safety net you can provide for yourself. So if you're trying a new trick that's a little bit beyond your ability. You're afraid that you're going to land badly or you're going to fall. Know that you have an exit strategy in place that you've rehearsed. You know, I, I can manage landing at a deep squat because I've rehearsed landing at a deep squat. I know that if I'm going to fall off the pole, I can get my feet to the ground before, you know, anything else contacts. So provide yourself a safety net with your ability to be uh, responsive to many, many different environments. And then when you're trying a new trick, you can go, hey, this might not go how I want it to, but I know I'll be okay because I can, I'm like a cat now. I can land in any, out of any position. Yeah. Yeah, we always talk about that with people learning. If they're, they're you know, they've, they've never kicked up against the wall before because they're brand new but really want to learn to do a handstand, actually having that exit strategy, as you say, already built in, pre-programmed, a decision made. I know if I'm going to fall, I'm going to go to the right-hand side. Yeah. I'm not leaving it to a decision when I'm up there. Oh, am I going to go left? No, it's going to be like half a cartwheel down to the side, and I know what that feels like, and I've practiced it, and I feel safe. I totally... 
when when people are learning something like that i'm a big believer in creating an environment that you feel safe because for for me my experience has been until i feel safe and comfortable in that training environment i'm not going to give myself the headspace to be able to focus on the skill it's a bit like tim's been doing a lot of work on his hands freestanding handstand push-ups recently and talking about strength in abundance that when he's got so much strength to press out he doesn't have to think about the strength we can think about something else <clears throat> it's the same principle we're starting out for me learning something new where if it's if it's a handstand as the example there is there's the fear of falling down and until you create an environment where you don't feel that fear i don't believe a lot of us will be able to um, give ourselves enough mental capacity to be able to focus on the actual skill of balancing upside down. No, and I think you're, I think you're right. And I think fear is a, is a legitimate thing. It's, it's actually a pretty good, pretty oh, good survival uh, mechanism that we have in place. <laughs> and, you know, most of the time you probably want to listen to that. Like if you're going in very fearful, that probably there's too many pieces of the puzzle that are missing. So, you know, like yeah. it's the first time I don't have someone catching me. I'm not strong enough. I don't know what my exit strategy is, and good luck. You know, that's that's not the way to go. You want to know you've got a few of those things in the bag, so the bit that you're unsure about, you can focus on, and, you know, there's there's room to make mistakes. So I think that's, that's one of the things here is that sort of moving away from the idea of saying, I've taught you that, you know. Okay, I happened to be there when you learnt it, but that wasn't me giving you that. We've provided an environment here, and, and the environment goes beyond saying, okay, here's a here's a pole and here's a crash mat. It's like, you know, who are the other people in the room that you learn from every day when you're in? You know, what 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 do you get on YouTube? What what's the culture of training and sharing uh, that we have here, and what is the role of the teacher and, and as a facilitator to ensure that people can maximise um, the gains from this environment. And yeah, I, I hope I can be there on the journey when you're learning these new, new, new tricks and you, you you're having these great un- moments of understanding. But it's not my thing to give to you. It's my thing to sh- to be there with you, sort of thing. Yeah, that that just a quick link um, on what you said, Glenn, around the um, uh, the the perception of fear and. We, we, were, we were talking about this before around the, the idea of threat. So that starts to bring in this neurology, um, brain-body interface. And some you guys have really opened our eyes to that. And and essentially, in a nutshell, how that kind of bridges what, what Glenn was saying was around just the, the central nervous system or the brain's perception of threat and therefore fear and therefore what the knock-on effect is and that of what our movement quality is going to be like. Just I know it's a very, very big sub- subject, but just like if you, your thoughts on, on that and how you guys are implementing some of that quite novel um, training and, and teaching practices into what you guys do. Yeah, like I, you know, certainly I'm, I'm, I'm along the ride on this one with um, my colleagues in the office here and, and, and James McCambridge in particular has, has really dived into this um, you know, much deeper than, than I have. But what we're realizing is that neuroscience uh, doesn't have to be for, um, you know, super brain rocket scientists out there. I mean, there is that level of it, of course. There's a lot to know. There's a lot we don't know. But actually, there's a lot of um, low-hanging fruit that's quite transferable directly into the, into the work we're doing. It's, it's no longer around uh, brain damage or psychology only. It's actually about physical performance that we could be looking at. So what, what we're realizing, I think that, that thing about threat perception is, is really interesting, is, uh, is that whether it's threat because of what you're about to do, or actually because your body is feeling out of balance for whatever reason, you know, like you, you know, if uh, we've seen when we look at things like the, the vestibular system and saying, if that's not switched on properly for whatever reason, your body's going to go, ah, you know, 
I don't feel at my full strength, so I'm going to limit your range of motion. I'm going to limit your, uh, your, 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 your power output. So we're trying to say, you know, and, and, you know, can we identify where people have got some deficits in, in, in their sort of neurological makeup? And are there any little tools that we can use to, um, you know, even if it's momentarily, uh, enhance the, the sort of the output of, the, of their central nervous system to assist in the, in the learning process? And then the other thing about talking about variability is that can we load some of this stuff in on top of the technique? So if uh, rather than saying, okay, what's the next step? Well, it's adding another half twist. So, well, no, let's not add the half twist, but let's see if you can be counting backwards from 100 in sevens while you do this. So there's a big cognitive load that's going in on yeah. top. And that could be the variability that we put in. in uh, and, you know, and that's your ability to can just sort of multitask or, or at least to have the brain really firing up, trying to achieve uh, this cognitive load at the same time of doing a, a, you know, so a physical task and how that enhances uh, uh, yeah, the learning process. Yeah, we, it's interesting because we've always had it here staring us in the face is that, you know, there's you know, the, the, the research that we've sort of seen that, that um, references circus is heavily loaded towards juggling. Uh, and, and, you know, I find it really interesting that, that in the world of circus, we talk about balance and we very clearly talk about the disciplines that are based on balance. So, you know, tight wire or hand balancing uh, are clearly in the category of balance skills. Yeah, you know, if you look at it back on a very simplistic turn, if I'm, if I'm just standing with my feet close together with my arms by my side, and if I lift my arm out sideways, you know, uh, sort of on a physics or, uh, level or engineering level, I should fall over, but I don't. You know, there's something very complex that's happening with inside my body to sort of counterbalance that, that movement. And then you think, okay, well, if I move both arms up and down really quickly, wow, my body's really working hard to keep me in balance. And you think, well, shit, that's, that's juggling. You know, what we're doing is we're moving our arms very quickly and, you know, but, you know throwing and catching balls. And actually, it's a, we're realizing that the, the, you know, the value of being able to juggle, uh, aside from being a performer in, in juggling, is that it's really a complex hand-eye coordination and balance and uh, the cerebellum's fired up, you know, all that sort of stuff is a great tool to use either as warm-ups or to add complexity to, to as we've seen, seen you doing, Jacko, on, on the video of doing some stretching, <laughs> throwing a bit of juggling yeah. in there. So we get, you know, do we get a better skill acquisition, skill retention, but also just, uh, you know, really making that sort of, bring that mindfulness to, to practice um, through the art of juggling. We're yeah, finding that's, that's a great skill. Yeah, and I think that that side of things is uh, is massive, isn't it? And like you said, there's probably a whole you could probably do a whole series of podcasts just on that that aspect of the the, the brain and the neurology um, inputs and, and how you can change things, whether it's skill acquisition, where it's mobility and flexibility. Um, but it's just open, it just for us when we came and you know you you did a couple of things of people that would have watched on our stories you did a couple of little um, eye movements and test things for me to uh, as a little a little test piece on me to um, sort of show that we can make changes physically by actually stimulating parts of the brain and that is just uh, I think not necessarily knowing all the answers to that but just opening up the the thought process for people that there's more if you can't touch your toes and your your hamstring flexibility is rubbish it's more 
than just the fact that your hamstrings are, are tight? Like what's actually going on physically in your body to, to create that? Um, so just endlessly trying to touch our toes might not be the greatest way to improve our flexibility. No, and, it, and it's really hard is that, you know, we, we, you know, we've been sort of introducing a lot of this neurology stuff over the last few years and there's quite a lot of pushback because people go, oh, we just don't understand it. And, you know, and in some cases it really works for some people and others don't. Yeah. And so they really dismiss it as a thing. And it, and uh, it, for us trying to change some of the um, very classic approaches to strength training or certainly to flexibility it's really hard you know we all have a tendency as like just stretching let's get in there and stretch and spend the time under under tension is the way to do it and we're trying to say well actually look if you can get your eyes moving better and and actually maybe then you see a change in your flexibility far greater than what you did by that 20 minute stretching session not only does it say how do we more be more time efficient uh, with, with, you know, we've got yeah. students training here sort of, you know, a good seven hours each day. We can buy them back a bit of time uh, from some of the old school techniques yeah. that they're using. Well, that's a benefit. But also just to get into the idea of saying, oh, wow, if that's one thing that worked that I didn't know about, does that mean there's another 20 things out there that I don't know about? So yeah, yeah, keep, let's keep that open mind to what the next uh, methodology might be. And so we, we borrowed a lot from the sort of a, the, the Kelly Starrett side of things, the, the test retest, you know, it's like, how do you feel now? Try this intervention and did it work? And you say, yes, okay, well, that's in the bank. Keep that one. You know, you can go back to that and keep yeah. using it. Uh, if it didn't, okay, well, there'll be something somewhere. Let's go looking for it. And, and, you know, always having that point of, there's a lot of, students that will still default to go sitting in splits for two minutes while they're sort of doing some texting to their mate and that's their sort of flexibility training done but actually is that is that doing what we want it to do now is that the most efficient use of, of your time and it's and it might psychologically take a box for them because that's what they you know everyone's always done traditionally but we're hoping to see some shifts from some of those sort of older approaches yeah, I think it's one of the things that I loved about when we the the conversation we had, and, and and it comes out again in this that you are, um, what you're you're doing some quite groundbreaking stuff in a really interesting area, but your your approach is very much that you're open to just learning from any input and just constantly trying to um, improve yourself as a, a and and what's being taught in the at the national circus. And I just think it's really it's really refreshing to, and it comes across that you're you don't sit there and in 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 our conversations and in this podcast say that you've got like the answers you say right we found some interesting stuff out and there's probably loads of other interesting stuff that we're still going to carry on uh finding out about and when we do we'll implement them we'll test them and we'll find out which ones do work which ones don't and then we'll keep refining it and and then in then sharing that with uh the wider audiences you're trying to do like with, with some of the projects that you've going on, that's going to be um, helping people to, to learn a little bit more coaches, teachers in, in other sports and disciplines to actually come in and share and understand a little bit about what the types of things that you guys are, are learning and using and how that might be um, applicable into, into other areas. And I just think that's just a, it's, it's something that's makes us want to just keep coming back and keep talking to you more and more. To be honest. I think, you know, I'm, I'm really, really fortunate to have, to, you know, be in an office here with, with uh, people that are very like minded in the way they think. And, and actually circus is, is novel enough and cool enough that we also attract interest from outside like the, you know, like you guys and, and like I said, Will Tullett from Chelsea and other, and other areas that have come to us and go, hey, this is really interesting. So, and through, through that, I, I guess I'm really fortunate that in the last couple of years we've started to think, 
well, hang on, maybe this stuff does have some value outside of our little world of circus and, and you oh, know, what's 100%. transferable into other environments. Um, and, it, and it's, you know, when, when we went out and we started teaching the um, Chelsea Football Academy movement coaches some basic acrobatics so they could then teach the, the kids. And, and again, Will's approach to this was that we want them learning stuff that's just not football because they do football nonstop yeah. all the time. How do we expose them to a different movement capacity? So we were going down there and uh, we'd, we'd sort of, we were, our philosophy was we hand it to the, to the coaches themselves rather than us being the ones going and delivering it. So we're giving them, we're upskilling them to be able to apply this. And then after a while, they invited us down to watch the, watch the result and we went in there and, and it was really hard, you know, from my traditional sort of gymnastics and then sort of classroom environment here, everything's sort of quite ordered and then watch these sort of super athlete, but, but young kids doing the version of sort of acrobatics that we're showing them. It was chaos, absolute madness, you know, and I was like, Oh God, I was getting really nervous. But then looking at it, so if you sort of blocked out some of the, 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 the chaos of it and just look, watch each individual were doing, they were achieving, you know, they were exploring and they were experimenting and, and yeah, they'd broken all the rules about what a good learning environment's supposed to be. And it's, and I'm still having to always reassess what I think is the good, is the right approach. And I guess, uh, you know, one of the classic stories that I try and sort of talk to our, our teachers about is that I had a friend in, in New Zealand and his father was a, a very, um, a uh, highly, highly qualified back surgeon. And uh, I don't know if, if it was over here, but there, there was this thing in New Zealand called the, um, the lumber roll, the McKenzie lumber roll from the McKenzie Institute. And it was, you know, you put it in the back of your, behind your back when you're driving the car to give you this lumber curve. And that all came about because back in the day before that, sort of they have this understanding, any, um, it was very contraindicated to be an extension. If you had back pain, they, you know, the typical uh, patient would walk in bent over forward. And so the doctors were saying, well, obviously your body wants you to be in this forward position. So, you know, therefore avoid extension. And so all the, the treatment couches were like sun lounges, you know, they were on an angle. So when you sat in them, you were still kept in the slightly flexed position. And he had this patient come in one day and, and the you know, guy's typical bent over position. Doctor says, look, just jump on the bed. I'm going out to check your notes at the reception. He left the room. When he came back in, the guy was lying face down on this lounger, like the long <laughs> way and completely in extension. And the doctor just about, you know, lost his shit and just said, get off the couch. That's, you're doing it all wrong. And the guy got up and he goes, wow, doc, I feel better than ever. You know, and it's like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> so by, by the mistake, we found the new Correct, you know, and that's what we're trying to say in the circuit is, is allow an environment, safe environment for the mistake to maybe being the next amazing yeah. trick. Uh, so yeah, very cool, Glenn. That's been amazing, mate. We've got so much, um, so much out of you there. So thank you so much for your time and sharing your your wisdom and, and insight and knowledge with with the audience. It's been great for us. Um, so if people want to find out more about you and the National Circus, and I would encourage people to get involved because you have yeah. got some exciting projects in the pipeline, especially if you want to actually go and experience some circus, learn some circus skills, or, or particularly around education, you've got some exciting work coming up around that. How can people engage and connect with you? Yeah, for sure. Well, just 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 jump on the website for the National National Centre for Circus Arts is our official name. I think it's National Circus is the is the website .org.uk. Uh, and indeed, we've got a, we've got a big event coming up in July where we're we're opening the building to uh, to to professional movement fitness professionals, trying to sort of share with some of the stuff we've done with you guys on a, on a broader scale, hoping to give people the opportunity to to leave here with some skills that they can use with their with their clients. So definitely uh, encourage people to keep an eye out for that. And then and I'm Glenn at the National 
centre, so that or the nationalcircus.org.uk, so anyone can drop me a line. And like you say, we're we're really keen for people to come in through the door, see what see what we have to offer here, and how we just love having these conversations. So, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you, Glenn. We'll make sure we put some of those um, links in the show notes so it's easy for people to uh, to find you and and the National Circus. And uh, if you have, uh, we hope you've enjoyed uh, the podcast and, and, and listening to Glenn. I'm sure Glenn would love it if you went over and gave us a nice <laughs> positive review um, on iTunes if you've been living, listening uh, on there. And if you've got any feedback, uh, we'd love to hear from you. I'm sure Glenn and the, the rest of the team at the National Circus would love to hear from you as well. So do hit us up with some messages on uh, your favorite social media platforms um but other than that um thank you glenn for uh being on the podcast it's been an absolute pleasure uh speaking to you as ever um yeah guys well obviously for me thank you so much so i just have to say class dismissed